You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to our podcast live from the ABA section of Antitrust Law Spring Meeting 2018. This is Melissa Whitehead, and I'm the host for today's episode, which is being recorded on location at the ABA section of Antitrust Law Spring Meeting 2018 in Washington, D.C., Joining me today, I have Scott Martin and Bruce Simon, and uh, welcome to the show, guys. Thanks. Thank you, Melissa. We're going to be talking about what it's like on the plaintiff side of the V. Before we get started with my questions, why don't you all tell us a little bit about yourselves, like where you work and what you do? Sure. Melissa, my name's Scott Martin. Bruce is being his polite West Coast self and letting, letting me start first. So uh, I'm a partner at Hausfeld, which is a claimants or plaintiff side firm in New York. We started the New York office about three years ago. Um, I will tell you that uh, my time before that for uh, over 20 years was spent principally on the defense side. Uh, Bruce has been, uh, we're here at the, at the spring meeting, Bruce has been recruiting plaintiff's attorneys, I think, to uh, uh, the ABA for longer than I've been a, a plaintiff's attorney, uh, which, is, which has been a successful endeavor. Uh, we had a terrific uh, turnout at the, uh, at the plaintiff's reception last night, seems to grow every year. Um, but my time was mostly spent for about 20 plus years um, at uh, Wild Gotchel and Mangies and at Greenberg Traurig, uh, both firms of over a thousand uh, attorneys. Uh, and principally doing defense side work, uh, principally doing antitrust work. That's a, that's a switch that I made about uh, three years ago. Um, so if you go back and look at some of the comments that I've made over the years at ABA events, uh, uh, they would probably be ones that I, I might just modify a bit these and days. And how about you, Bruce? Well, I grew up in San Francisco, San Francisco native. There are not too many of those uh, anymore. Stayed close to home, uh, went to UC Berkeley, for undergrad and UC Hastings College of the Law in downtown San Francisco. Um, I've primarily been on the plaintiff side my whole career. Uh, I did a little defense work for a couple of years at a firm in San Francisco, and I figured out very quickly that most defense attorneys would rather be plaintiff's attorneys, and I certainly uh, didn't like that part of it as much as helping people out. So my firm is uh, Pearson, Simon & Warshaw, LLP, we have offices in Los Angeles and San Francisco, and uh, it's been a great 10 years that I've been uh, at that particular firm, and uh, we're in lots of big things, as Scott knows, and uh, really looking forward to uh, the next 10 years. Thank you. Uh, I want to start first with the most obvious question, which is why the plaintiff side? Um, and Scott, why don't we start with you? And I'd like for you to talk a little bit too about how you may have found the light, as some people might say, and made the transition over from the uh, defense side to the plaintiff side. There, there are many people who say that or, you know, glad you're not on the dark side anymore, all these things. I did not figure it out quite so, quite so expeditiously as, uh, as Bruce did. It took, took me a number of years. In fact, I'll tell you, I, I went to school, college and, and, and law school in, uh, at Stanford in Northern California, and somehow I seemed to have made the wrong turn and wound up with New York winners, too. So I should take a little life coach advice uh, from Bruce. We have from a Cal time Stanford thing going on here. Um, yes. That's right. Uh, yes, that's a whole that's different right. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think what what attracted me to uh, uh, to the plaintiff side, at least um, uh, intellectually, 
Um, there are a number of things, you know, that, that occur in, in large law firms, including dealing with conflicts uh, when you have a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of corporate clients. Um, and there are some, uh, some things about the plaintiff side for many of us uh, that we find personally rewarding, wearing the white hat, uh, to, you know, to use the, the time-worn expression. Um, but uh, from the perspective of a practicing lawyer, I think what attracted me most um, was that you start out, and for those you know, who uh, dream of writing the great American novel but grounded in fact, that's in many ways the exercise that you go through when you're writing a complaint you tell a story. For those who have been uh, in, in some way felt uh, uh, pigeonholed uh, or constrained on the defense side to looking at one or two uh, particular uh, defenses or ways to, um, uh, ways to get rid of an action, um, that's not something you do on the plaintiff's side. You start out and throughout the course of the case are constantly thinking about how you would try it, uh, how, how you would prove the case, how you would establish each of the elements, what's going to be attractive, you know, to a jury, um, and how you're going to develop the evidence. And from that perspective, it's really an incredibly enjoyable exercise for those of us, you know, who are litigators. So what was it? Um, was there any specific point in time where you decided, all right, this is it, I'm, I'm making that switch? There, there was an epiphany, and it did, in fact, happen in the most, uh, uh, you know, the most banal sort of way, which was it was one conflict too many. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I happened to pick up the phone that day and, and got a call from uh, an old friend of mine uh, on the plaintiff side, uh, Michael Hausfeld, who I'd known for 15 or so years. And he sensed my, my anger that particular day. I wasn't angry with him, but just in general, and, and asked me, you know, what, what, was, what was troubling me? Uh, and I told him, and I, I made... Uh, uh, a life-changing comment. I said, you know, Michael, some days I just feel uh, like saying to heck with it and going to the other side of the V. And there was silence on the line uh, and never one to miss an opportunity. Michael said, I'll come up tomorrow. We'll have lunch. It was a three-hour lunch. It was followed by a three-hour dinner. Um, and a lot of things just fell into place and made sense in terms of you know, my perspective. And how long ago was that? Well, that was about four years ago. Now, Bruce, you have um, been on the plaintiff side for most of your career, as you mentioned earlier. How did you decide to get started on the plaintiff side? What led you to that? And maybe what led you to the plaintiff side antitrust work in particular? Well, I, as I said, I grew up in San Francisco. I went to Cal. Um, I came from a background where I wanted to help people. Uh, most importantly, I wanted to be in court. Uh, I consider myself a trial attorney. You know, they're litigators and trial attorneys, and I think there's a distinction there. And as Scott said, uh, I've written on this and spoken about it. I look at every case as if it's going to be a trial from the very beginning to the very end, and what can I prove? And, and to me, that's just a fascinating thing. I have always um, not really liked, you know, throwing barriers in the way of uh, other people in cases. Uh, I like to be efficient, and I like to prove the case and, uh, you know, get on with it, not go down dry holes. And I always felt, and I did for two years on the defense side, it was more about, you know, trying to keep everything at a slow walk. And uh, on the plaintiff side, you got to move fast. Uh, You got to move with alacrity. And uh, you got to, you know, 
know where your finish line is and not divert. So I, I think, you know, the trial work has been uh, really uh, what has driven me towards the plaintiff side. You don't get many trials these days anymore, That's unfortunately. Um, and the bigger cases you get into, the less trials there are. I was very fortunate to try back in uh, 2012 uh, one of the largest antitrust class actions in San Francisco, the LCD case. And uh, that was just an amazing experience. But I didn't start there. I started with very small plaintiff's trials, PI cases, uh, things that took one or two days to try, if you can imagine. You know, Whereas these cases that we work on and a lot of people do here at ABA in the antitrust section are so massive that um, you know, they take sometimes months to trial. So there's a certain uh, element to being the one standing in front of a jury and saying, you know, uh, my client's been wronged and uh, you have justice in your hands, and we want to see you uh, set it straight. And I like that role a lot better than the, the other role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I know I was a part of the LCD case as well, and that entire experience was just a really interesting experience for me. Um, do you think you'll have another trial like that in your future? I hope so. I mean, you know, these, the gestation period for these cases is a long time. Um, you know, one thing on the plaintiff side, which I'm sure Scott appreciates now, is that uh, there's a lot of risk in these cases. Um, You have to be entrepreneurial in your cases. You have to take cases which uh, you know hopefully will result in a a good result for your clients and for the class, but they can take years. And, you know, one thing that's changed dramatically is the law has made it harder on plaintiffs to prove their cases, both from a pleading standpoint, from an expert standpoint. Uh, you know, you can spend millions of dollars prosecuting these cases, and there, that's a lot of risk. You can't have too many million-dollar cases that go south on you in a row before you know you have a problem. What What is the old um, the old Cardozo opinion with the uh, the flapper, right? The the amusement park ride. The timorous may stay at home. That's that's what it's like. It's uh, uh, I admire all those who are able to to start out as as plaintiffs' lawyers, and uh, uh, I'm, I suspect they all have pretty good pretty good accountants to deal with things like phantom income that we don't think about on on the defense side and and the risk that you you know that you face. It's absolutely true. Bruce is absolutely right about that. That actually leads me to another question that I had, which is um, how do you find your cases uh, without giving away all your secrets to, to other lawyers who are, might be in the same position as you, but how do you go about finding those cases that are really worth it to you to take on, and what advice do you have for other people out there who might be thinking about switching to the plaintiff side? It's definitely one of the most important questions for anybody who wants to go on the plaintiff side, starting out on the plaintiff side. Um, it's not obvious how you get clients and how you market. I mean, I'm lucky now. Scott's lucky, his firm, because they have reputation. We have a reputation. So, you know, we have clients come to us and we have returning clients from other cases. Um, and, you know, people want to uh, retain us. So that that's great. But if you're right at the beginning, uh, it's not necessarily the case. It's really about networking. Um, most of the plaintiff side cases come on referrals. So when you're here, like at the ABA, for example, or you go to an ABA conference, uh, we'll talk about one a little bit at the end, um, it's about meeting people. Uh, you never know who might have a client for you. And if you build a relationship uh, and a case comes up, then you know that's how it works. Uh, I mean, we're constantly looking 
at subject matter for cases. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not obvious to young attorneys how to go about marketing themselves so that they can get clients. Uh, you know, technology is a great thing, but you can't just do it through websites because, right. you know, the interface with the website, you might get, you know, a cold, uh, you know, call or somebody will ping you on the website, but it's really about somebody out there saying, I want Bruce or Scott as my attorney. And that's a, it's, it's a real intangible uh, type of uh, process. It's, it's unique for me too, um, on, uh, on this side of the V having, you know, represented defendants much of the time in, in, in that I do find a number of, you know, older corporate clients who come back after, you know, four or five or in one instance, you know, even 20 years, um, and are thinking about where they may actually, you know, have any competitive conduct that they're facing in the marketplace and, and whether there's some way for them to redress it. Um, and that's great. I mean, I feel like I've opened some of their eyes uh, to, those, to those things. But um, one thing that, you know, Bruce is, uh, has, has left out because he covered so much um, is we're both voracious readers. Uh, and we will see things in the New York Times, uh, the Wall Street Journal, um, one of the newspapers out there in San Francisco, I think there are still two left, right? right. Um, uh, the, the Chronicle, the Oakland Tribune, or, or whatever it may be. Um, and people think a lot of, you know, a lot of the time that the plaintiff's attorneys just file what the Department of Justice does, what the FTC does, uh, what the state attorneys general do. No, many times we develop cases on our own and we see things in the marketplace that, you know, we're able to think about, you know, when we put our head down on the pillow or, you know, or in the shower in the morning and, and the light goes off. And those are really the most rewarding ones. And that's a very important point because um, two cases I can point out that I've done, there were no government investigations. Mm -hmm. I mean, you hear a lot of the time that we ha we file follow-on lawsuits. And that, that does happen, you know. Uh, that's obvious to anybody who does this. But uh, the Potash case, uh, which I argued all the way to en banc to the Seventh Circuit, was a case we developed completely on our own because we have had agricultural clients who were saying, you know, the price of this doesn't make any sense. Uh, the poultry case, the same thing. Almost two years of investigation into that case. Um, you know, no investigation currently. And that, to me, if you develop a case and you bring it to fruition and you win that case... That's really, that's something that's really rewarding. And, I mean, the DOJ and, you know, big firms, they bring plaintiffs' cases too, but they have so much in the way of resources to bring those cases. And when you get, you know, a true plaintiffs' class action firm and they bring a case like that, they developed it. I think it builds street creed, number one, and I think it also shows the world that we just don't follow everything that the DOJ does. I think that's right, and I think you know one one thing that it leads to too, which we haven't discussed, is, um, and and I, I think Bruce would agree with me on the plaintiff side, there are terrific opportunities for younger lawyers to develop all of those skills in terms of. Uh, developing a case for trial in terms of understanding the entire litigation process in terms of uh, getting opportunities to do depositions to argue motions uh, and so forth that you know by 
by necessity, by virtue of our, our size compared to large defense firms, uh, our resources being our own, um, and being able to rely upon everybody in our firm uh, to do as much as possible in a case, uh, open a whole world of opportunities for younger lawyers uh, that aren't necessarily there for them, you know, in the M-Law 100. Yeah, the, the, my son, uh, Alex, uh, is a second-year attorney in my firm. He's here at ABA. And the thing that fascinates me about watching him is I don't want him to be just like me, and we've had that conversation, but he has developed these skill sets on his own, in his own way, based on his own generation. In a lot of ways, I think they're stronger than some of the skill sets I had, you know, at that point in time. Obviously, technology has a lot to do with that. I mean, I'm from the school where I used to pull books out of the bookshelf and look up cases and, you know, make photocopies of them and bring them to court to argue. So... Um, but I think young attorneys, young plaintiffs' attorneys, diverse young plaintiffs' attorneys is very important. And that's why for the last five or six years, I did a plaintiff's task force. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we did the uh, 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 Global Private uh, Litigation Committee, which is um, not just plaintiffs, but it's you know focuses on plaintiffs-type uh, cases. And we have a very diverse good group of people, and it's very important to ABA that we continue that initiative. We, we cannot let down. I mean, this organization is, what do you think, Scott, 80% defense firms? Oh, it's well over 80%, I would, I would say. Right, I think yeah. it, it's approaching 90, but you know what? In past years, it's probably been 97, so it's, it's, getting, it's getting there. And after all, everybody on the defense side needs us. But the one thing that's absolutely <laughs> true and I've seen this from the plaintiff's reception that we had last night, every year growing, as Scott mentioned, plaintiff's attorneys are more fun. <laughs> it's absolutely clear to me. I know I had fun on the plaintiff's side when I, when I did that as well. Why don't you guys talk to me a little bit about what you see as one of the biggest obstacles facing you on the plaintiff's side in, in the work that you do? Well, we, we could write it down. I wonder if we might have the same, <laughs> the same response. Rule 23? I, I think class certification is getting so difficult, so complex, um, uh, frankly, so frowned upon by many members of the Supreme Court uh, right now, uh, so expensive um, and uh, so incredibly um, hard for judges to deal with um, in terms of the economic regressions and other modeling that occurs in the context of an antitrust class action, um, that it has become, you know, a real impediment potentially uh, to seeking redress in those cases um, in the United States in a way that, frankly, it hasn't, and I can, I can say this, in many, many, many years. It, you know, it used to be uh, routine when I was on the defense side that in a price-fixing case, the class got certified. If it was horizontal competitors, it happened. And I can remember being at a NERA conference, an economic conference 15 years ago, um, and the question went out around the room, you know, who in here has defeated class certification uh, in a horizontal price-fixing case? When I was on the defense side, I was one of two hands uh, out of, you know, 70 venerable lawyers that, uh, uh, that were in that room. Um, now it would be a lot more. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I um, started long enough ago that I actually have filed class cert motions that have been granted where we didn't have an expert declaration. 
And that will never happen now. Uh, it could never happen now. I mean, we basically had the attorney declaration with whatever you had uncovered in your investigation and what discovery had uncovered with the documents attached. And the rule effectively uh, was that the conspiracy is the predominant fact that overrides everything else. Mm-hmm. We now have so many permutations as to what you know individual facts may be. You know, uh, do you have the whole class in? Are you leaving people out? Um, you know, how do you do that? Indirect cases, direct cases. The economists have just you know it's a boon for them. Mm-hmm. It's not a boon for plaintiffs' counsel. The expense of litigation is chilling the justice that plaintiffs can receive in class actions. It's simply as you know, straightforward as that. And I'm not sure what we can do about it other than try to go back the other way, but we certainly don't have a Supreme Court that's going to let us go back that way right now. Do you ever think about focusing more on individual plaintiffs instead of class actions as a way to, to get around that? I, I have, I, I, and I have done that. You know, We do have individual clients. Um, I know Scott does too. It, it, here's the problem. It's a whole different dynamic. If, if you have an industry which is just fraught with uh, collusion and uh, uh, the marketplace is being corrupted and there isn't competition, one client, even a big client like Dell or you know whatever, they can't really change the market themselves, but a class action can. Sure. And um, you know, it's often forgotten that almost all these class actions have injunctive relief claims as well. Mm-hmm. And trying to fix the structure of the market can be not just about money, but also making things better going forward in the future. So to me, you know, in the right case, I have no problem representing individual clients. We have. We've even been on the defense side at our firm, even though we're mainly a plaintiff's firm. I just think the class actions is what really gets you where you need to be if you're trying to fix something. Yeah, I agree with that in, in, in most instances. There are, you know, there's certainly some cases um, where, uh, and we represent individual uh, claimants, uh, both in, in litigation and not in litigation in many, many circumstances. Uh, there are some instances in which, um, to be sure, they can do better um, than they would in a class action, and you will see you know, an opt-out case um, uh, in, those, in those circumstances. But there are a lot of situations in which, frankly, as a corporate client, you don't want to stick your neck out. Um, you don't want to have your head over the parapet, particularly if you've got ongoing business relationships with a very important supplier. Um, uh, two issues ago in the, in the antitrust uh, magazine put out by the section, uh, uh, Brian Henry and I and one of my associates uh, did an article, in fact, on, on just these kinds of decisions that in-house counsel have to face, you know, called um, a cartel damages recovery, a, you know, a roadmap for in-house counsel, and it really is a road with a lot of different turns in it. So it, it happens, but Bruce is, you know, Bruce is right. It's, uh, it's a much more difficult decision-making process for companies. Thanks for sharing that, guys. And bear in mind, too, it's right now, um, in large part, the only uh, recourse that's available for many companies overseas. That's changing uh, in, you know, in Europe. You're, you are seeing collective redress now. You are seeing uh, in, in particular jurisdictions, you know, the Netherlands, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, the opportunities, you know, for class actions on an opt-out or opt-in, depending upon where you're located, basis. Um, but it's the exception, not the rule. And, and there's got to be something to it because back when I started, I mean, 
uh, U.S. DOJ, they were the lead sled dog. Mm -hmm. I mean, they started all these cases, and then uh, the EC got involved. But now there's over 120 competition authorities around the world. Um, So it's definitely a global practice now. Um, And even for a firm like ours that doesn't have offices in Europe like Scott's firm does, uh, we nonetheless have to be cognizant of what's going on in Europe. A uh, perfect example is I'm lead counsel in uh, the Ger- German automotive case uh, that's pending in front of Judge Breyer and a district court in San Francisco. And that all resulted from investigations overseas with foreign corporations obviously sell their cars in the United States. So the antitrust jurisdiction is here as well. There's lots of things going on over there with the comp authorities, not only the EC, but the German comp authorities and others that, you know, 20 years ago, that wouldn't even been in my brain. Uh, but now I have to, have had to expand my horizons, which is probably a great segue to uh, give a, uh, I was a, a, <laughs> a blatant plug. Pitching, right? yeah. Yeah. You we, promised we, us. Scott, la, uh, last year, was it last year or year before? It was last year. Last year. God, time flies. Um, he was the chair, and I helped him out as one of the committee members for a, a conference called Gro- uh, Global Private Litigation Conference in Amsterdam, which was a wonderful thing. And we, it was highly successful for a first-time program with ABA, and we're doing it again in June of next year, uh, 2019, in Berlin. It is a program that, you know, we talked about how you get clients and how you build relationships. I think that's one of the best programs that ABA has for doing that because it'll be largely plaintiff's attorneys, mm-hmm. uh, claimant's attorneys over there, and it just the interrelationship that you can develop in this program I think is is terrific. But it's an opportunity for defense attorneys, you know, not only to learn, but as as Bruce said, to uh, spend some time uh, with the more fun half <laughs> of the bar. So. Yeah, they, 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 uh, we did have a lot of defense attorneys. And, and by the way, I, I, when I talk to my defense friends that are candid with me, they say when they go to things that, you know, the plaintiff's perspective is, um, is you know, set forth, uh, they like that. They want to hear it. They want to know where the secret sauce is uh, from our perspective because that helps them in their cases. If you have just a bunch of defense talking heads, sometimes you're just hearing stuff that you already know. And uh, we are more fun. Um, I think we're starting to wrap up a little bit and getting close to running out of our time. But I wanted to ask you a few questions that I think will be particularly relevant to young lawyers. What uh, We've talked a little bit about networking and what young lawyers could do if they're interested in getting on the plaintiff's side. But other than networking, what would you recommend uh, to young lawyers who are interested in learning more about working on the plaintiff's side? I This is a pet subject for me. Um, I spent... Uh, 12 years on the UC Hastings board. I was chair of the board for two years, and I interacted with law students during that entire period of time. Obviously, I have a son who's a lawyer. And the number one thing that young attorneys kind of are hesitant to do, which I say you have to do, is go find somebody that has experience and talk to them. Find a mentor. Find somebody that you can call up on the phone and say, hey, I was thinking about this. What do you think? Uh, there's a little hesitancy, even when there's you know over 3,000 people at ABA, uh, and you're having coffee together. The young attorneys tend to hesitate a little bit, and I would just encourage them. Every one of us, I know Scott and me for sure, they came up and asked a question, wanted advice, wanted a lead on this, that, or the other thing, bounce ideas off of us. You got to do it. You can't be afraid. 
That's really good advice. I know sometimes I worry about taking up time of someone who I know is really busy, but it's good to hear that it, it's a welcome invitation. No, so absolutely. I appreciate that. No, absolutely not. And I think uh, we're, we are not too busy for that. I think Bruce and I have both done uh, over the years um, the section's formal mentoring program and, and taken on an individual. Um, and, and it's happened organically, too. We've done it in, in, informally uh, many, many times, I'm sure. Um, that's a, it's a terrific response. Uh, the, other, the other piece I would add, frankly, um, and it applies to defense lawyers as well for the younger folks, um, mm-hmm. go out and take on a pro bono case mm-hmm. because not only is it going to be rewarding, um, but you're going to get a sense of what it's like to be a plaintiff's lawyer, to really go out and, and develop a case, have that direct relationship with a client, and potentially have to seek a result with you know the assistance of a partner or a mentor, but largely on your own. Right. And by the way, there are programs in all the district courts for pro bono cases. And when judges get pro bono or uh, uh, you know, individual cases where the individual doesn't have an attorney, um, they love it when an attorney comes in and picks up that case, especially if it goes by summary judgment and they, there has to be a trial. You can get trials out of that pro bono uh, program, uh, you know, in all the district courts. That's great. That's really good advice. Um, so aside from the formal mentoring, which I know you mentioned, Scott, and then, of course, the um, upcoming conference that the ABA is, is putting on and, and you all are participating in, are there any other... ABA uh, antitrust section um, opportunities that you would recommend young lawyers to look into, like a particular committee or something like that, that young lawyers should be looking into opportunities to participate in? Well, another plug. Here we go, Bruce. Uh, The Global Private Litigation Committee is actually the fastest growing committee in the section by far, grew by 33% in terms of its membership last year. Very active uh, committee members uh, in terms of their output uh, in articles uh, and in programs, and it's a terrific, uh, terrific resource, as well as putting on the conference in in Berlin next year. So I would say that, and I think we're seeing more, uh, not from our perspective enough yet, um, but more programs uh, here at the spring meeting that are are plaintiff-side oriented. So those are two recommendations I would make. I couldn't agree more. And then young attorneys should definitely go to the young lawyers' events and participate in anything that the young lawyers do. They're everywhere, and there are opportunities everywhere. But, yeah, the Global Private uh, Litigation Committee, uh, which started as a task force that Scott's partner, Mike Hausfeld, was involved with, um, really was the whole purpose of it, was to bring to the forefront a committee that, you know, presented the plaintiff's side as much as it could. Uh, we uh, Again, no committees can be just plaintiff or defense, but, you know, we wanted something that could be the focal point for plaintiffs participating, and it really has grown into that. So I encourage everybody to join that committee. Well, thank you. Um, it looks like we have just reached the end of our program. I wanted to thank both of our guests for joining us today. Thank you all so much for being here. Um, if our listeners want to reach out to you or perhaps want to ask you more about what it's like to be on the plaintiff side and, and get some advice from you on their own career, how can they contact you all? Fastest way for me uh, is just to go to our website. Uh, we've just redone it, so we are proud of it. Uh, Hausfeld.com, H-A-U-S-F-E-L-D.com. Uh, and you can, I think my bio is, is up and done. Uh, you can go there to Scott Martin and 
find my contact information. Probably the same for me, uh, www.pswlaw.com is our website. And uh, uh, I'm happy to give people my email since it's on the website. It's bsimon at pswlaw.com. Right. Thank you both. I really appreciate it. This concludes another podcast from the ABA section of Antitrust Law Spring Meeting 2018. If you like what you heard, please find us and rate us in Apple Podcasts. I'm Melissa Whitehead, and until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.